as a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this episode are those of the participants and do not represent any entity that they volunteer with or are employed by. Enjoy! Hey everybody, welcome to Almost Nomadic, podcast where we discuss geopolitics, national security, and a bunch of nonsense over beers. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me tonight is... Sean McGuffin. Robert Thomas. And Lex Cardone. I recorded on February 4th, 2022. Yeah, it's been a couple months since we did an episode. Get over it. Um, <laughs> Don't I, you miss us? No, it's so it's so bad. Like we, Now how many episodes we did last year? How many episodes do you think we do a year about since we started? Well, we go through, you know, great artists go through prolific times and go through <laughs> uh, dead times. So, like Mozart and um, M- Manet, uh, you know, we're in a rut now. But let's uh, let's let's keep moving forward. We we do twenty four episodes about twenty four episodes a year. We did six last year. Hey, it's quality, not quantity, Ryan. I mean, some were quality, some weren't. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho. Uh, so it's February 4th, so it's the um, opening ceremony of the Olympics, or the Winter Olympics in Beijing, which is a whole thing, which we might talk about at some point, but not tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the situation in Ukraine and the potential invasion of Russia, or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of so, more Ukraine. Uh, yeah. My Ukraine. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, bad joke. Bad joke. Bad joke. <laughs> I, uh, before, I have no yeah, it's, joke. Yeah, it's it's I'm, it's been a while, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not. I was never funny. Now I'm less funny than I was before. Um, but as always, before we jump to that, uh, what's everybody drinking? Who wants to go first? Sean. Uh, I'm drinking just a Moscow Mule right here out of my fancy little copper cup, and uh, yeah, it's very tasty. Made for it by myself. Mostly. All right. Well, I am drinking. Are you double fisting, Rob? I have a backup beverage. <laughs> <laughs> I only had one beer left in the fridge. It was a uh, three notched uh, Brewing Company uh, Minuteman IPA. Um, pretty solid. Um, not overly bitter. It's. Um, Little little bit of a richer one, which tends to be my preference if I'm going for an IPA. And then since I've just got the one, I've also got a, a glass of black currant wine from Forest Edge Winery in Minnesota <laughs> uh, at the ready. Uh, should I need something more to partake in as we go? Well, you can always do a beer wine mixie and really class it up. Uh, yeah, I don't think these uh, I don't think these uh, are intended to go together. Oh, the notes are just phenomenal once you let them open each other up, Rob. <laughs> was this in your wine your wine class or no? Uh, okay, well, well, we'll skip yeah, that part. No, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Do, do your wine class next time and just be like, so if I put a seltzer uh, in this beer, in this wine, will it be better or worse? So boxed wine. The, yeah, the, answer, is, the answer is boxed always worse because those right. hard seltzers turn into garbage as soon as they get above, like, the lowest – temperature setting on your refrigerator which is why you mix it with your wine to then give it a certain flavor and it brings out the aromas you with can't, the bubbles you can't recover from pure failure but you can't go any further down as well 
So there's only room <laughs> for improvement. Once you get the mixtures just right. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the look of disgust yeah, right so, now. So much <laughs> tragic <laughs> optimism. It's like, it's like, I, duly noted. I'm about to, dis- yeah, I'm about to, I'm about to disappoint um, Ryan, but I'm mixing it up a little bit tonight. I am drinking a athletic brewing company run wild IPA, which is a non-alcoholic IPA. Um, I've been cutting back drinking a little bit recently. Um, and I found this, it's a small microbrewery out in Connecticut and it's actually pretty solid and refreshing. It's got a nice head to it. Um, good color, really, um, solid taste. You can tell it's not actual beer. Um, but I've had actual beer significantly worse tasting than this looking at you whale testicles uh <laughs> <laughs> since no one has any context for that no one's gonna get the joke but only long-time um, listeners might get that one <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah it's, what, it's a good want, way to mix it up you want a perspective like go back and listen to the episode hashtag team nato uh and then we'll maybe you'll listen about what that was there we go some cross-referencing and relevant connections <laughs> yeah actually it no, probably was for the first you're welcome. time but um and I'm drinking a St. Boniface orange pollinator. It's a flavored Hefeweizen. Um, wow, not an IPA for you. Yeah, so here's why. Uh, a friend of mine, she is from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where this brewery is. And I was like, I'm going to bring a bunch of beers back for you. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Very thoughtful. Thank you so much. I only hate two kinds of beers. Sours and wheat beers. And what did she bring me? Several Hefeweizens. And this has been sitting in my fridge for the last month. I'm like, I guess I should drink it. It's not bad, just I don't want, want to drink it, but I'm going to. A ringing endorsement, it sounds like. I like it. Bringing the enthusiasm. Well, yeah. <laughs> this was the worst one that she brought me, because the other ones were kind of okay, but this is why, that's why it's left over, because it, no one drank it, because it kind of sucks. <laughs> no. Those Amish don't really know their beers. Mm. I, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, not Amish. That, that, like, that, that tracks. I, I mean, that tracks. <laughs> but, um, anywho. So... We've seen the last couple months is a massive buildup of Russian forces on the Ukrainian border, um, in Ru- on the Ukrainian-Russian border, but also the Belarusian, Belarusian, um, in in a Ukrainian border, basically, up to there's an estimate between 100,000 to 130,000 troops ready to go, the equipment ready there to uh, potentially invade, um, and it's kind of like. So why is Russia doing this now? It's been how many years since the last time they um they they did a little their mini invasion for Crimea and then um and then the the Donbass situation and all that kind of stuff. The totes not invasion, as they prefer to yeah. call it. Little green yeah, little green men. Yeah, I feel well, like that's the, the major question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you're seeing a situation where the Ukrainian um, I mean, there's there's a lot of theories as to why it's now it could be uh, a reaction to Putin's sagging poll numbers after some economic issues. COVID, uh, Russia has a big COVID problem now. Um, you can also see it as a response to Ukraine's continued um, slowly but surely uh, arming itself. The military now is not, I mean, it's, it's not anywhere in comparison to Russia's tech, uh, technically wise, but it's getting a lot of um, a lot more assistance than it has been in the last several years, from notably from the United States and other um, NATO partners. Yeah, actually, uh, there I've read an article about, about how Turkey's been arming them up the last couple of years, and they and yeah. how, how they've been actually utilizing drones to take out uh, like 
I think one story is like it took out a howitzer and, and Don Bass and stuff like that. It's just like and, and Putin was less than pleased to hear from that. And it gave like uh, Erdogan a very uh, the president of uh, Turkey a very not nice call. Like, hey, hey, no, 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 no. That's yeah. how it's supposed to go. And the, those uh, drones were I extremely we were useful. Friends. <laughs> those drones were extreme. They're cheap and extremely useful in uh, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Um, they took down a lot of um, Russian equipment. Um, granted, you know, second tier Russian equipment, uh, but still it's, yeah, that, um, there, there, there has some been analysis saying that it's, um, a question of cutting costs in the future. Like it, the Ukraine right now, the military is only going to get stronger and stronger. Might as well do it now when the costs are relatively low. Yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of um, competing issues. Like, like it's like things. Does Russia have legitimate grievances? They they were they're worried that one day Ukraine become a, could become a member of NATO, and then be used to basically dictate security the security situation in the region to them to NATO over Russia. You know, just like Russia will now be on the back foot rather than in, in a good standing. Well, that ties into the why now because. A lot of the discussion has been around that aspect of Ukraine possibly joining NATO. However, Ukraine wasn't like it was on the brink of joining. Lots of NATO members, knowing it would be a provocation, said you cannot join right now. Uh, however, the the idea of Ukraine eventually coming into that alliance, yeah, that makes them that makes them panic in every single type of way. Yeah, there's a kind of an unspoken agreement in among NATO countries that no country with an active territorial dispute um, is going to be allowed membership. So it's kind of not a situation that can happen at the moment, but what Putin sees, and whether this is accurate or not, it doesn't matter because the, of the Russian uh, view is um, if you extend NATO's up to Russia's borders in that way, you make it even costlier to defend against you open up the Russian heartland to missile attacks and um, in range of um, aircraft, both missiles and aircraft, um, in the way, in the same way that Ukraine's, most of Ukraine is in the range of uh, Russian missiles now. So it's, um, in Russia, security really trumps any other consideration, whether political, uh, economic, or otherwise. Um, it's been that way since, you know, the first czars held the country together. Uh, with their own their medieval secret police so it's um um it's just a, another variation on a, a consistent theme rob so i kind of want to question how much of this is really about the possibility of ukraine joining nato at some point is i mean first of all i mean as as sean pointed out the chance that that's actually going to be an offer on the table for them uh, anytime in the the near, medium, or probably even long term is pretty limited. And frankly, NATO is, there's no reason to at all expect NATO to engage in a random assault on uh, Russian territory just for the hell of it. But how much of this instead might be about Ukraine aligning with Europe in other ways? I mean, 
the possibility of eventual EU membership, integration with with European markets and with European liberal democracy as a system. I mean, that puts a a sort of implicit challenge to the Russian political model uh, right on Russian borders in a pretty big way that other commentators have noted would really do a lot to undermine the justifications that Putin and other leaders in Russia make for the kind of autocratic regime that they maintain. How much is how much is that sort of calculus part of what's going on here? Yeah, I, that's a really good point. Having a functioning or even a semi-functioning democracy right on Russian borders um, would be a huge um, issue for uh, the internal prestige aspect of um, the kind of kleptocratic uh, uh, security establishment-run system that is the modern Russian state. Um, what I'm uh, I'm confused about is, I mean, why now? I mean, Ukraine is still the most corrupt nation in Europe by far. It's hardly functioning in a lot of really important ways. Um, does Putin see something the rest of us don't that, oh, maybe they're, you know, turning the corner here? Um, I, I'm not as up on Ukrainian domestic politics or, you know, institutions and all that, but it, seem, it, it seems like that could be an issue for, for him. Well, I think I think there's some issues regarding it. it's like, well, you remember where Putin comes from. He was KGB in, in Germany during the Cold War. And when everything collapsed, it came down. And he's like, oh, it collapsed not because of like tanks and missiles, but because of democracy, because of protests, because of things like that, rather than like anything else. So he's, he's like, that's that's scary to Russia because he has such control over everything right now. It's just like a thriving democracy right on his board. A former, so like these most, you know, the jewel of the Soviet Union kind of thing, you know, and, you know, till Chernobyl, but like, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things I think that he just, it's, he sees it as a potential downfall if, if they succeed, I think, I don't know. It, it sounds essentially, uh, no matter how you cut it, it's a now or never type aspect of because of the creeping political influence and just example it shows. Creepy and then it. say what? Nothing. God damn it. And because as someone else mentioned there slow increase in capabilities to defend themselves should the Russians invade later on down the line. Because they don't have, I think, a lot of the Turkish drones that uh, that Lex pointed out. But the more they get, of course, the more that's a threat later on. And they are cheap, and uh, they have clearly shown their ability to counter Russian-made equipment in, uh, you know, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And that 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 is a, that's a concern. But what's the the case in which Ukraine is likely to use any of that sort of capability against Russia beyond stay out of our territory? I mean, the the idea that Ukraine is going to launch a, a war of conquest against Russia is one of the most absurd geopolitical scenarios that I can think of. I mean, that's, that's, pure, pro that's pure propaganda. And the, uh, the Russian government knows it. the Russian people know it. Um, it's it's unimportant, but it's it's posturing um, to, you know, it, with uh, Lushenko in, in Belarus coming. We're going to come and help Russia protect itself from Ukrainian aggression. It's like, which one's the elephant and which one's the ant here? Like, but um, so I would 
hazard to get like what's our thinking here what's uh, is there going to be an incursion if so how big and then eventually what's putin's goal in mind and what's uh what what's the calculus here sean uh to that end i it, it's where he's now kind of put himself into a situation where he either goes in at spending a lot of cost, both in money, lives, and his own polit- politics, to go in and fight a war, lose thousands of people, and get part of, and probably not all Ukraine, and have that at least be Russian-aligned. But uh, even the most aggressive people or the most optimistic people from a Russian perspective, it's not like suddenly all of Ukraine is going to be pro Russia, and it's going to revert back to the pre-2014 revolution. So it's it's where I think his goal is to get Ukraine to stop being pro-Western uh, or stop being pro-EU or pro-NATO, however you want to call it, while spending as little of those other resources as he can. But that's not really an option given everything that's happened since 2014 and even everything that's happened in the past couple of months that you either invade and at cost, or you don't invade, and then he looks like he didn't get anything for all this posturing. Flex. Yeah, I would say at this point he has to do some sort of kinetic action, um, and mostly because you know the famous saying, "War is politics by another means." Um, what he's looking for here is a settlement that um, it's more important than territory. Um, holding parts of Ukraine, the land bridge. I mean, there, there are factors in all that. There's, you know, Crimea is running out of water. Um, but what I think what Putin would like to do is invade enough and then come to a sort of a diplomatic agreement or an agreement um, changing the Ukrainian constitution from a unitary state to a federal state, uh, meaning giving all these regions of Ukraine um, much more uh autonomy, which, um, you know, he can market as, you know, we're letting people who live where they are decide what they want. Um, But what the effect would have is it would, in a place like Ukraine next to Russia, it would permanently wipe out Kiev's influence over um, its own independent foreign and domestic policy. Um, So you would keep it perpetually weak and divided. um, And probably corrupt and ripe with cronyism and exactly in other words exactly what he wants a satellite state to be um even if it's not wholly on his side like um belarus currently is almost to balkanize ukraine so that way it's not a staging ground or a threat at some type. right so that's that's certainly a possibility but one thing that i I would kind of suggest is that we should be cautious about assuming that there is any one single end game in mind with, with Putin or his inner circle. I mean, my reading over the years at least has been that Putin is a tactical opportunist rather than sort of a a long-term visionary strategist there's not sort of a highly cohesive long-range multi-pronged master plan for for russian foreign policy and security policy that we're seeing play out in highly coordinated fashion so much as a set of kind of general 
aspirations, grievances, and concerns, and a pretty successful knack for spotting conditions in different situations where you can squeeze in an ad hoc maneuver to get some advantage or poke a rival in the eye. And that that has often worked pretty well in in the last several years since Russia's not really the status quo major power in Europe. It's pushing back against and trying to maneuver for advantage in a, a US EU NATO context. But that also has the risk of boxing yourself into corners where you've made a bunch of ad hoc moves that leave you in a position where there's not really a good or especially coherent next move to make. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because I don't think it's predetermined. Um, I, I, if I were a betting man, I would say some sort of major military action is likely um, more so than not, but exactly what end game is involved and exactly how that's structured. I'm not sure how much that's even been figured out in the Kremlin. Lex. Yeah. Fun fact. One of uh, Putin's or his initial intelligence evaluation when he joined the KGB, uh, he was noted for his quote unquote lowered sense of danger, which is basically <laughs> his, his, his superior saying. So like a toddler. Uh, he's prone. He's prone to taking excessive risks. Um, and that yeah, that was not meant as a compliment. Toddler, so if I you're think, mean, bravery, if you're a complimentary. <laughs> yeah. It, so I think the tactical versus strategic thinking point that Rob made is spot on. So, so at this point, can Putin really back down? Like, is that something he will be be able to do and basically be like, okay, I'm I, I've gone too far. I fucked up. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull back my forces, Sean. If what I think it would take for him to back down is uh, concessions from Ukraine in some way, which Ukraine really hasn't shown willingness to do. Um, one uh, someone else mentioned that. Uh, Crimea is running out of water because, well, the Ukrainians shut off the aqueduct after it was annexed, conquered, uh, taken. Uh, Donetsk, uh, the Donetsk area is still in, has been an active revolt and insurgency for years now. And so either some recognition of their real, like, formal autonomy or even, de- you know, de facto independence, something like that, I think it would take for Putin to back down. So far, NATO has thrown out things about, uh, you know, arms reduction as far as nuclear weapons, has been discussions of restarting those, uh, more transparency on uh, on uh, war games and other drills like that. But anything, anything short of stuff in Ukraine is going to be seen as a loss. However, it's it, it, it's not the... Uh, it's not what I think he was hoping for, especially given the demands that he was sent out were so uh, high and so, um, you know, so steep. Rob? So I think that question, can Putin back down, actually depends on what do we mean by by that with at least three possibilities here. Can Putin back down in terms of avoid avoiding a major military altercation and still leaving Russia in 
a favorable national security position. Can Putin back down and leave himself and his clique in a favorable domestic political situation? And can Putin back down psychologically as an individual? And I think those are three different questions. And I think the first one is, frankly, the easiest one. There are lots of realistic concessions that Putin could get diplomatically that would ease whatever security concerns may may actually be there and leave Russia in, in pretty good shape coming out of this without having to send more troops into Ukraine in a more blatant fashion. From a domestic political perspective, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated uh, and harder to read how how different things would sort of play out with internal intra-elite politics as well as public opinion. But then the the third one about psychologically, um, could Putin countenance backing down? No matter how many psych profiles some (laughs) some external analyst might draw up, uh, none of us are mind readers. Speak for yourself. Ryan uh, secretly outing himself as uh, a psychic <laughs> no, 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 all no, no, along. No, no, no. <laughs> He's going to start up a, a great new psychic talk show. Uh, that's going to be his new career. What is Putin thinking? Uh, new podcast coming next The week. answer every time is fuck if I know. Drinks vodka. <laughs> uh, Rob, to your point, at least on the public avenue, or I guess the second leg of your stool there, uh, that's something that uh, I've read about why people think it's not as likely to occur that he'll actually invade or do a major military uh, commitment because at least amongst uh, Russian media and both the media they're putting out to the outside world and internally, they're not really psyching it up to be, hey, like we need to go to war because this is a threat. Uh, at least lending to the idea that this is some type of bluff for negotiation. It doesn't have to be, of course. It, there was no buildup, I think, uh, to say the 2014 incursion, but that was also a snap decision in which this is much more planned out. Lex. Yeah, I, I I think there's a good point to be made for that, but also you look at Russia's interventions even further abroad in Syria, and there wasn't in that buildup, there was, um, you know, some mention of, you know, the terrorist threat, we need to protect our borders, all that, but it was a pretty, you know, a, small smallish expeditionary force to support um i think there's a lot of people in eastern ukraine specifically in the breakaway uh people's republics but even in the east um that have more affinity with moscow than kiev um so you have a situation where uh if he chooses to um it's there's a way to do this at minimum cost that doesn't involve occupying half the country So one of the things that I think comes in here is the question of pretext. Uh, And it's been quite striking to see the the U.S. and U.K. governments in particular um, very, very directly put out declassified public statements um, indicating specific 
Russian plans to basically come up with false flag attacks and things like that to have a, a pretext here to so, to justify, so, so, oh, we, we are responding to aggression and we have to intervene against uh, some atrocity here. And yeah, it's- that's not something that is a purely reactive thing there. That's that's sort of a card to have in your in your back pocket, uh, presumably. Of they they may not know whether they want to actually take a particular course of action, but they want to be able to have something waiting in the wings to justify it quickly if they do. Yeah, do we want to touch on what that uh, the whole false flag thing that they has going to come out the last couple of days? Yeah, I can jump into that. Uh, a few weeks ago, the UK Foreign Intelligence Service came out and with a, a, uh, a what Rob said, a public statement about how um, they had detected uh, a pro- high probability that um, Russia would create a um, use as a false flag sabotage. They would create propaganda videos with actors um, indicating Ukrainian aggression either against Russian speaking civilians in eastern Ukraine or against Russia proper. Um, a couple of days ago, the US came out and essentially confirmed the same thing with a few minor differences. Um, and it, it is pretty fascinating to see this. It's kind of like we, you know. We know what you're doing, but let's get ahead of the narrative because it's almost like Langley is finally figuring out like the narrative uh, battle is is honestly in many ways more important than the actual fight. Um, you, the getting out ahead of it, saying and creating doubt um, if and when the Russians come out with these propaganda videos, which which I mean I have to imagine if I'm sitting in the uh, the Russian intelligence service building right now i you know do i and we had and say the intelligence is accurate um do i go through with this do i not now that you know it's already been put into the media landscape that um this is something if um that could happen if people start seeing this is this going to be as effective a pretext as it was before um the cia does what the cia typically doesn't do and go public so i mean i do we think that the movies are starring and directed and directed by Steven Seagal. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Oh, I, uh, I the I just, executive producer is probably Tucker Carlson. <laughs> That's he's no, he's, he's the starring actor. Right? Let's as long that as way. Alex Jones is the voiceover for the, the narrator for the the, inter, the introductory scene. We just made a million dollar movie. This could be great. <laughs> <laughs> what oh, is God. Netflix going to pick up our idea? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the false flag thing was a kind of serious thing. I'm like, okay, we need to watch out for this because they're, they're they want a pretext so they can go to excuse. I mean, they so they could justify it at home and abroad, like, oh, look, we're no guys, we're the good guys. It's like in all their discussions, they're like, oh, we're willing to talk, but they're not really doing anything to talk, they're just throwing out more uh insane demands. So, what is the U.S.'s, the United States's uh response kind of into this? What has Biden been talking about? I mean, because it's been very like, okay, we're, we're putting some troops. We're sending more troops over to that region, but nothing really is saying so. It's saying defensive weapons. I'm doing air quotes uh, to to Ukraine. Uh, Alex, 
Yeah, it's it's been cautious, but it's also I think it's been surprisingly coherent in terms of, you know, we're not this is not a situation, even if the worst happens, even if Russia invades Ukraine, uh, this isn't going to be a situation where we're going to be seeing American battle groups and Russian battle groups going at each other, which I happen to agree with. That's idiotic. Um, but we are putting enough skin in the game that um, to display to the NATO allies, specifically those on the eastern flank, like, hey, this is serious. We are, you know, and, and you can quibble with what the, um, you know, should the sanctions be imposed now or, or after a potential action or should the, um, you know, uh, the weapons deliveries be more. Um, but I think generally speaking, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> regarding a, a few um, press conference flubs that, you know, is classic Joe Biden. But I don't know. I, I, it's, I, I think it's a, after a year of not great execution on the foreign policy front, I think it's finally somewhat in the right direction for the Biden administration. Uh, Sean. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I agreed with what uh, Lex said. Uh, I think it's a discussion that I'm not firm on, but something to bring up to the group of how effective has the general front of Europe and United States position on if Russia attacks, how effective has that been in deterring action? Because uh, what they've generally said is we will not directly fight you, but we are going to fund the Ukrainians uh, with things they need to defend themselves I mean, in they defensive weapons or what we, or weapons of any type that's that's a yeah. silly thing but yeah. i get what but they're you, doing yeah but you can't invade a country with uh shoulder shoulder mounted missiles but i think they've done to answer your question i think we've uh the u.s has done two things uh one it's kind of countered the russian the russians have been going straight to the u.s and the eu they've tried to sort of um sideline the ukrainians and all this and make this a clear U.S.-Russia um, discussion, whereas we've kind of countered back to them, uh, hey, anything, you know, that needs to be, anything we approve of also has to be approved of by the Ukrainians, basically kicking it back to them. Um, so I think we've done that well. Um, I think, and, and sort of making sure that, you know, obviously the very junior partner here, but making sure that their, um, their position is 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 consistently pushed forward to the front when Russia tries to you know sweep it under the rug. And um, the other thing I would say is that um, we've come out and said uh, not so we've you know we've suggested and even said that um, in the likely event if there were a Russian invasion the Ukrainian army was overrun um, Washington would fund an insurgency. Um, based on the territorial defense battalions that have um, how, come up. How much have and, they committed? How much have they committed to doing that? Because I've heard the, that, that they're kind yeah. of that they said they could do that. All I know is, <laughs> yeah, that's all. It's all. It's which is probably ambiguous on purpose. It's mostly theoretical. Yeah, both on purpose and. But uh, one thing I do know from history is that uh, America is a lot better at funding insurgencies than it is at fighting <laughs> them. Um, so watch out for an American-backed uh insurgency um but i i don't think putin would want to risk occupying as much to make that a real scenario so 
Well, that's, that's the thing too. Is speaking about because like one of the, I mean, there's been all all kinds of articles coming out. Like, oh, what's the what could they do? What, what how could their you know response be? What could the invasion look like? What's the end goal? You know, so many different things. No one really knows. But there's one thing like occupying all Ukraine would not be easy, and it'd be very hard on them to do that because it's like even it's like we invaded Iraq, and it was like what not, not like maybe maybe at the at the time maybe less than the popula- half the population. Of Ukraine, yeah. And also current, it's like, current, go ahead. Yeah, current uh, U.S. doctrine regarding occupations, which is kind of like most you, you don't know what's going on in Russia right now, but it's like one soldier for every twenty-five civilians or something like that, which would mean extrapolating that if you're if you're seeing the polls are somewhat accurate, like seventy percent of Ukrainians would um, say that we, obviously seventy percent wouldn't, but they say they would be willing to take up arms in defense. Uh, you're looking at somewhere around 325,000 uh, occupation uh, soldier, 325,000 troops in, an, in a hypothetical Russian occupation force, which really doesn't exist at this time. I mean, they have that many. They have pl- they have plenty of soldiers, but um, what they have in the field right now is kind of their their crack units. Um, that would take a lot of funding and manpower and training and logistics that. Uh, right now i think is beyond uh the capabilities of the russian armed forces well it, it makes me think of like when the u.s invaded iraq in 2003 it was just like wait that's enough to occupy right right guys turns out it wasn't um history and shit but like yeah i mean the the, the issue is that they don't have enough troops to do it there'd also be a lot of you know it wouldn't be welcoming and it'd be a lot of people wanting to fight back or disagree with them and everything else like that and also the ukraine not, not the Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians have created a uh, a pretty, I think, significant militia network. Who will you know? Who will pick up arms and fight in their neighborhood, basically? Yeah, and the most important part of any insurgency is the foreign sanctuary, and in this case, you have literally all of NATO already shipping them weapons. So yeah. if it comes to a point where a significant portion of the country is invaded and occupied, or the entire country is. Um, you have a lot of willing uh, partners for any insurgent group, which, you know, I, I think tactical Putin is uh, is is wise enough to not uh, mess with that. I just thought of I thought tactical Putin. I, the first thing I thought I was him wearing a Kevlar vest and sunglasses, going yes, yes, comrade. No, no, but, it's uh, him on a horse, shirtless on a horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's just like well. Remember that time you guys were in Afghanistan and that didn't go well and you lost a fuck ton of people? So, like. But as we've learned, Afghanistan just doesn't go well for anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's. Oh. The, and the, Ukraine the is. The geography of, there is not. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Although, that, as far as everyone agrees, or at least generally thinks, that there would be a pretty good and, or a pretty decent amount of insurgency activity going against the Russians, which is why they wouldn't want to invade all the country, but. Most people don't think that they would occupy the entire country almost no matter what. They'd go up to about the Dnieper, which is the big river that cuts the country in half, and then take maybe Kiev if they don't, if the Ukrainians don't back down before then. And they would then do that and then hope it's enough to then force them to the table to then get whatever political settlements uh, that they want out of it. And it'd be difficult to hold the three million people city of Kiev, but Rob, go ahead. True. Well, in that aspect of the the geography, I think is is quite important in that Kiev is is 
not exactly on the far western fringe <laughs> of Ukraine. Um, there's not that much of a meaningful, defensible uh, chunk of the country for Russia to occupy short of getting to the point where they are either occupying or encircling or right outside the edges of Kiev, um, which which kicks things up a, a level in terms of escalation pretty quickly. Uh, Lex? Yeah, there aren't too many natural uh, barriers here, but there are some important <laughs> factors. Um, one is the, you know, the flat swamps and terrain are currently frozen over. Um, so Putin's window to move heavy vehicles across open plains, um, you know, as many armies have found, uh, the, the, the springtime in Eastern Europe is the mud time. Uh, so that could be, that's more challenging now, or more challenging back in, um, in history than it is now with air power and all that. Um, there's also another intriguing thing I saw today that, which I didn't know when the, uh, the Germans were invading in World War II, uh, Stalin blew up a bunch of the dams along the Dnieper to use the the river networks as basically floodplains to slow the Germans down. Now, of course, being Stalin, he didn't really care that it, it flooded half of the Ukrainians downstream. Um, but that is potentially another, um, you know, roadblock that, in, in in fairness, probably wouldn't be much of a roadblock well, um, to, to determine. But yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, does, wouldn't Perpiet yet kind of also be a blocker uh, oh yeah uh, radioactive z- zombies are also something that the russians need they gotta watch over, they gotta watch over the boars the yeah. well yeah because everyone's also at least presuming that russian troops would move in from belarus as well so they do have to go around the chernobyl exclusive zone and the marsh that's uh you know the size of u.s states however even from from there it means that they could get to Kiev quite quickly, but it's then a case of, uh, is that enough for them to just quickly dive in, uh, you know, take a bunch of territory, which most people think that they'd be able to take things relatively quickly, that the Ukrainian army has lots of people, but they don't have lots of good stuff. And the Russian army has lots of people and lots of good stuff, mostly. Eh. Uh, I said mostly, I gave a caveat. (laughs) Better than it was a few years ago. Definitely better than that. Oh, However, yeah. if it if it came down to a shooting war, I think it would be a matter of what would force Kiev to to call to cry uncle. Because if they if they're willing to put up with a lot a lot of suffering and punishment and force the Russians to occupy that land, that would quite that would be that prove very expensive to the Russians in lives, men, and material, which yeah. the Russian public may not like. And there is a significant constituency inside Ukraine, both in the Duma and in the population, that would be potential um, collaborators is too biased of a word. But um, there's a lot of uh, capability for the Russians to, if they could, install a friendly government. There, there, there are the people there to make that happen. Rob? Well, although I... I do have a sense that the Russians tend to overestimate that. Uh, they they have seemed to conflate parts of the population being Russian-speaking as their first language with being pro-Russia and 
and likely sympathizers to Russian occupation. And that's not the case. None of the Ukrainians I've ever met who speak Russian as a first language are pro-Putin or pro-Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that it's, said, yeah, I mean, they it's live not, in state. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's a, it's not nearly as clear-cut, you're right. Um, but it, there, there is a, a pro-Russian, a significant pro-Russian minority, um, not just Russian-speaking. So it's... Although a shrinking one. Shrink, yeah. And I mean, most of the, I, a big, I don't know what percentage of the country is Russian as their first language, but yeah, the vast majority, the majority of them are not. Um, but, you know, there's a quizzling in every, uh, every group. I mean, even in just the, the last few years, the way that the poll numbers in Ukraine since, I mean, for, since 2014 have flipped in terms of attitudes towards Russia it's an extraordinary shift uh, in in public sentiment that is I mean, not surprising when you look at the objective fact that an aggressive neighbor is forcibly occupying a chunk of your territory. But it's not clear to me how much the Russians have really grasped how significant the sea change has been in terms of Ukrainian public sentiment. All right. Final thoughts, Robbie. I think you just did. <laughs> Give yours. Uh, yeah. I, yeah I, I'm good. I, my final thoughts would be, I think that's just a fundamental because Putin doesn't have to worry about Russian public sentiment as much. So I think it's just something he doesn't necessarily put as one of his, um, you know, primary concerns when weighing the do or do not, you know, the pros and cons of this kind of thing. There so no I think that's an, no, yeah. He, he, I was going to do that. And you beat me to it, Ryan. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it, it's important, but it's not front and center. And that could be a big problem for him moving into the medium and long term. My, uh, my final thoughts are I, I might be with the, one of the pe- few people who are, I don't think Putin will end up invading. Just because we didn't even talk about the uh, we talked a lot about the material cost of actually having to send guys in. We didn't even talk about the diplomatic ones of other countries reacting, uh, possible more NATO members becoming because of that. And then, of course, the sanctions from it. However, it's it's something where it as as we've all definitely seen, I think it was a lot more than. Uh, it became a lot more drawn out than most people assumed it would. This has been going on for months now. And that's probably, in my opinion, because Putin especially is looking at this a bit more seriously, thinking, I I have to act. This might cost me a lot more because even if he doesn't have to deal with Russian politics, as was stated before in the in the podcast, he knows that the last Russian government was overthrown because of those exact same domestic politics. And the ruble dropped, I think, 50 percent since 2014 because of various sanctions. And it can't really afford to go much lower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't know. I, I think my, my only real walk. I mean, there's so much things we got to talk about, about Sweden and Finland or Germany's perspectives and everything in Nordstrom. But it's like 45 minutes was not enough to do in this episode. Maybe we'll do a part two. Uh, if this is a still ongoing issue in a couple weeks, we'll see where it goes. All I can say is hopefully... Um, Ukraine is left unscathed, and if the Russians do invade, hopefully they suffer for it. Yeah, 
this is definitely a case where my my hopes and my expectations are diametrically opposed in that I'm really concerned that serious military action by the Russians is is likely. And I hope to God that that's not what happens. Yeah, but um, Mm -hmm. we're out of time. I'm just going to say I didn't say the beginning episode, but uh, pardon for the poor audio. We're doing Skype because everyone's busy as hell and it's hard to get everyone together at my place. But uh, that was almost automatic. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for being Thank you. Bye.